If you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I'm your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. Marsh is a cooperative in St. Louis, Missouri with a fully licensed kitchen, diner, and food collective. They have implemented a unique model where workers, consumers, and producers work reciprocally as owners. Diner workers, non-working public participants, as well as aspiring, emerging, and professional culinary artists collaborate to grow, purchase, prepare, cook, and serve high-quality food. In this episode, I interview co-founder Beth Neff about how they are developing an inclusive and circular cooperative food system in a marginalized city. You'll learn how they are fostering resilience and food sovereignty through offering an affordable, organic variety of food, supporting local food producers and entrepreneurs, establishing a sliding scale market and diner, plus more. So hello, Beth. Welcome to the podcast. As someone who is an advocate for sustainable agriculture and food sovereignty, I'm really looking forward to learning more about how Marsh is fostering that in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for having me, Ebony. It's great. Yeah, so can you please give an overview about what Marsh Food Co-op is and the mission that drives it? I can. Um, So Marsh is a DBA or doing business as um, under a not-for-profit and the not-for-profit mission is to seek generative approaches to um, economies, local neighborhood-based or community-based economies. And so we we did a lot of exploration, um, a lot of research, and we're really interested in the history of cooperative organizing and also the ways in which we understand capitalism to be um, just by nature or definition extractive and exploitive. So to try to imagine what other systems might be feeling like it's it would be hard to move a society forward if we don't already have tested models for how um, other economies could potentially work. So we wanted to um, address the specifics of what we see as being the problems with the present system, um, you know, extraction and exploitation, um, concern both our social dynamics, the way people are involved in economies, you know, what labor looks like, who gets the benefit, um, and it also addresses the ecology of how we consume food. Um, Capitalism requires that we extract resources from the earth without necessarily accounting for those costs. So um, it's kind of an accounting system in a way, but we, and the other piece of it or I should say two pieces, is that that profit is by nature exploitive and extractive, and um, that democracy is not practiced as part of the way uh, of daily human relationships. And so um, we wanted to try to put together something that would have the features of the things that we think are are most generative, that uh, people would be part of the decision-making process, um, that people would be uh, compensated fairly or would have um, equitable access to the resources, that the resources would be uh, less extractive as much as, as we possibly can, that we would remove the profit motive um, from the, the decision-making process, and that we would also try to remove competition from the system, uh, which was uh, why we decided finally to see if there was a way of combining producers, consumers, and workers so that they are all working for the same goals instead of, of competing with one another, um, you know, trying to take something from each other. So um, a cooperative is um, a mutual benefit organization 
And so we tried to create uh, an ecology, uh, a system that would incorporate a consumer version, which is the part of cooperatives that most people are probably familiar with, um, a worker-owned cooperative so that any of the people who were actually providing the labor would also be part of the decision-making process, would be part of the, the benefit um, arrangement um, and producers so that producers would be also consumers and worker owners so that they would have no reason to try to extract from the system because they would be also benefiting from it. So that that's the basic concept um, behind what we're hoping to do. Yeah, we'll definitely dig a little bit deeper into how all of those members work together but i think it's so important that you're giving an alternative to a very extractive model and when you're extracting from the earth you end up creating not only this imbalance within the ecosystem but also an imbalance within communities because then it does become this very competitive nature where everyone doesn't have the same access to organic healthy affordable food and I think that that's so important. It shouldn't be this elitist thing. Now we have to think about, oh, do I want to pay double the price for organic food? Um, and especially within communities that have historically and currently been marginalized, it's like they especially should have access to this food. Um, so... Marsh is also described as a biocultural lab. Can you explain what bioculturalism is and how Marsh embodies that? Absolutely. Uh, yes, I um, kind of invented the term <laughs> biocultural. I don't know if it's used in other contexts, um, but it, it definitely um, addresses some of the things that, that we've already been talking about. Um, bioculturalism is an idea whereby we, um, we recognize that our habitus, um, which is, is part of the name of Marsh, um, is the way we move through the world. It's our, our actions and our behaviors and our decision-making processes. Um, and it's about Im embodiment, basically, that we embody the systems that we live in. So bioculturalism recognizes the fact that we are um, we are biological creatures. We eat, you know, we we do the things that that animals do. Um, we live on a planet, um, and that we that the relationship with that planet um, is often disrupted culturally. So if we can sort of rejoin those ideas without becoming essentialist, but to recognize that um, culture and biology are part of of who we are, and um, I think that. The word that describes it the best or the, be the best um, analogy for bioculturalism is just to be humane. So, so we're considering all of the features and, you know, the concept sustainability um, started out trying to, you know, that three-legged stool idea of, you know, cult social or cultural impact, economic impact and ecological impact, and that we would be able to make better decisions if we were considering all three and, you know, that the stool would be stable. Um, not surprisingly, the economic leg has continued to grow longer and longer, you know, sort of leaving the others behind and, and not improving the stability or the resilience of the system in any way at all. So, the, the coining of a term like bioculturalism um, helped to maybe take what's good from the ideas of, of sustainability, but taking it one step further into um, recognizing what some of the mechanisms are for how our decision-making processes are, are made and what some of the solutions for the issues that we confront might be. Yeah, I love the term. And I think it, also kind of takes it further from this idea of like we are a part of nature and like this kind of what can be a hippie concept but we really are and nature is also very much entwined with our economy so it's taking both aspects and um i think creating an ecosystem a cultural ecosystem within people that 
is already inherently happening within nature. Right. And I think one of the, uh, you know, my background is in agriculture. And so I was exposed to um, some of the ideas of permaculture, um, you know, back in the 90s. And, you know, it's to me, it's sort of an interesting case study. The, the concepts of permaculture are just they're fantastic. And, you know, when you study it more, especially if you're a, a practitioner, you know, someone who's actually growing food, um, it, it just begins dominating every way that you think, you know, it becomes a, a, a very important part of your mindset. And um, at the same time, over the course of time, sort of the same process that has happened with this concept of sustainability. So now we associate it with like, business practices. Um, permaculture, you know, became very colonialized. And it went in the same direction as you were describing with, um, you know, we're not, we're not thinking about food access, we're not thinking about people, we're only thinking about this kind of elitist growing strategy that only a few mostly white men are performing. And, um, you know, very little thought about the social impact of of who gets to do this and, you know, who owns land, who has um, these resources to be able to practice these ideas. Um, and sort of the, the way that I've been describing this is that we've done a really, really, really great job of asking how when we're thinking about agriculture and food distribution, um, you know, how the food is grown, but we have not even begun to address who, you know, who gets to grow the food, who gets to eat the food, um, how these access issues are addressed. So we're hoping that, um, you know, some of the, these laboratory ideas, you know, testing out ideas, because we can't know until we try it, um, will maybe bring some of these conceptual frameworks that have contributed a lot to the way we think about things, but but sort of bring them um, into focus about the issues that haven't gotten enough attention so far. Yes, I also love permaculture, and I see it as a lifestyle completely but I agree with you it's definitely um in a way appropriated knowledge because this is what indigenous people have been doing forever but someone coined the term permaculture and now that has become um something that only like a niche group of people have access to getting certification or even um being introduced to it so I like that you guys are really getting to like the grassroots community level and making it uh, more digestible to the average person and accessible. I could not agree more. I, I love what you're saying about uh, appropriated knowledge. Um, I think that, that that really has to be part of the interrogation of cooperative structures as well. Um, once again, we have some some great models for um, you know, the principles, the seven principles and, and, you know, what cooperation looks like. And then to recognize that, um, you know, those cooper those cooperative principles are, are purely Western, you know, they, we, the people document the history of cooperatives back to, um, you know, Rochdale in England. And so, you know, suddenly then you have this idea that cooperatives are European or some of the, the labor um, organizing that happened in Spain. And, um, you know, th that's, that's where cooperatives came from. And that, that's ridiculous. I mean, of course, <laughs> I mean, look at native, you know, indigenous cultures and um, it's, it's capitalism that's new, <laughs> you know, this, this, this whole idea of, of, you know, competing for the resources and having only a very, very small segment of the population benefit from that, um, you know, and, and distribution based on profit models, that, that's the thing that's new. Um, so I think we have to be very careful to uh, recognize that that cooperative knowledge is also um, can be appropriated and to understand what some of the, to look in different places for where we get ideas for what those relationships would look like. Yes, absolutely. I highly recommend the book Collective Courage by Jessica Gordon-Nembard um, that talks about 
the history of black cooperatives in the United States and how that goes back to even slavery. So absolutely. Um, you know, women, um, dominated organizations, the, the black cooperative movement that was incredibly powerful during the, you know, that short little burst of reconstruction after the civil war. Um, and, you know, we, we see this over and over again, the minute that any, um, marginalized or, uh, you know, non-supremacist group uh, gets any kind of power or uh, certainly economic power, um, you know, there are all of these strategies for just like knocking that back down. Um, And and we run into that today, you know, it's it's, it's sort of subtle, um, but you know, we've been accused of being socialists just because that's this term that people like to throw out. And it's it's just, you know, these associations uh, that it has to fall into the sort of these trappings of, um, you know, what for the last 70 years we've been told is dangerous and bad. Um, so, you know, whatever those labels are that people like to throw out, um, you know, or it, it's used in a, in a threatening manner as soon as you start building grassroots power exactly yeah they start to threaten you because they see that what you're doing is a threat to the system yes um because there's so much power in cooperatism and it's also creating an alternative economic model so people when they're introduced to that they're like well why should i feed into this capitalistic model when there's something that allows for uh, much more freedom and agency. That's the hope. Um, although it is, it, I have to say it is an uphill battle, um, you know, back to for habitus reasons, you know, we, we don't realize how embodied our, our habits become. So even with COVID um, people still have the, their, their life patterns maybe even more so people try to hold on to their existing life patterns. So if your way of getting food is that you, you know, you get in your car, maybe you do throw some of your own shopping bags in there, but then, you know, you've, you've made the step. Um, And maybe you do, you know, shop the outer ring of the store instead of walking down the processed food aisles in the middle. But those things are, um, you know, that's the way corporations keep us as, as, um, you know, sort of um, adherent to the system is by, you know, giving us these little strategies. So I've got my shopping bags, you know, I'm buying produce, that sort of thing. Um, It makes it easier not to think about, um, you know, what it would mean if you, you know, you ordered your own food, you made your own decisions about what you were going to buy, and you were part of a group of people who were deciding on those prices, and you had to meet together, you know, say several times a year in order to make decisions. And, you know, it's it's just a different set of behaviors that, um, that don't always meet people exactly where they are right now. So there's many choices about, well, how, how, do, how do we invite people in? Um, in a way that that doesn't create a hierarchy, um, makes it attractive, but not attractive in the same way that, you know, propaganda does. (laughs) Yes. Well, since you already started talking about these relationships, maybe you can go deeper into um, your unique model that allows for workers, producers, and consumers to be members and how um, this has created a reciprocal relationship between all of them. Um, yeah. Um, so maybe it would be useful to uh, describe a little bit of of the history of this place to talk about how it's evolved. Um, I sold a farm in Indiana and was able to buy a um, two-story, three-storefront mixed-use building in the Carondelet neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri. And um, in that building, which had been vacant for about 10 years, was a complete um, ready-to-be-licensed kitchen. All of the equipment was still here um, and a a diner 
So, you know, diner tables were still set up when we walked in the door the first time to look at the property. The sugar canisters and salt and pepper shakers were still sitting on the tables. Like they literally just walked out and locked the door behind them and never came back. So, you know, we know about what some of the financial issues now, we know about them now. Um, and yeah, it's tough to, you know, run a diner in a, a low income neighborhood and, um, it didn't work. So this building was left abandoned. Um, and it also had a very large, um, like a dining room area. And so when we looked at that, it was like, well, you know, food <laughs> needs to be accessed at a lot of different levels. Um, it, you know, the ingredient level is is one place um then people buy you know parts of meals you know they buy bread for instance that they don't necessarily make themselves that you need a kitchen for um and then there's sort of the the restaurant level and so there's all these access points that people have for food and so as we were thinking about those access points we were also thinking about well what what do people do what what do workers do well you know, in a grocery store, they stock the shelves, you know, not to go into great detail, but you could kind of see how there's this range of, you know, sort of capacities. And we, we pit those against each other to a certain extent, you know, we, we have to convince people not to buy the ingredients to eat at home in order to get them to eat at a restaurant. And it's like, there's, there's no reason to pit those things against each other. The, that's the full range of human experience. What would happen if the people who were involved in the organization just had an option for experiencing the full range? So, and then the, the history of co-ops being, you know, the consumer co-ops where people just you know, buy food, that's, that's their job within that, that co-op, and they may elect a board, you know, they may make decisions, uh, you know, possibly on some policy issues. Um, and then there are the producer co-ops, which have traditionally been um, farmers, for instance, who would get together to market their crops in a centralized way so that they could access, you know, wholesale markets. Um, and then worker-owned co-ops, which, um, you know, tended basically just to say that the, the workers who um, participate are going to be part of the decision-making process and they're going to benefit from, from, from the profit rather than having, you know, a boss or an owner benefit from the profit. And so our idea was just throw them all in together. And we originally thought we were going to start with the diner. And um, the first relationships that we had in the neighborhood were with people who were asking, when are you going to open the diner? When are you going to open the diner? So we thought, okay, well, if we're listening to what our community wants, then that's what they're saying they want. And so we began holding meetings and we had, you know, upwards to 30 people show up saying, I have restaurant experience, you know, I've done this before. And we began the process of talking about how are we going to make this connection that you mentioned earlier between sustainable food sources and um, the people producing them and the people eating them? And that you know, it was it was a a long bridge because when people think of a diner, you know, they think of you know the cheapest possible coffee, they think of eggs and bacon, you know, French toast. And so we began exploring this the whole concept of how do we create a diner, and, th and this is the metaphor for the problem <laughs> in capital letters, is how do we connect potentially sustainable diner food to a community that you may only have 90 cents to spend on a cup of coffee? And, and how are we going to make those connections? Well, that's as far as we got. We, we wrote a menu and we were at the point where we were talking to the specific people that had stuck with it and attended a number of meetings and seemed to be excited about the concept. And then the Mississippi River flooded into our property and our basement was full of water to the ceiling for over a month. Um, I call it water, but it was sewage, basically. The sewer system had backed up 
into our building. So all three of those storefronts, you know, had six or eight inches of water in them for a while. And then the basement was completely full of water, like a giant swimming pool, you know, three buildings wide. Um, and it took almost a year for us to recover from that um, whole experience, you know, all new floors, everything that had been in the basement had to be thrown out. We had to obviously sanitize the basement. You know, we got, <laughs> this is too much detail, but um, you know, the, the price for cleaning out a basement was between 10 and $20,000 per basement. And we had three basements. So we did that all of ourselves. So we bought like hazmat suits and, you know, scrubbed everything down and, you know, sprayed borax seven, eight, nine different times to, you know, try to take care of the mold. Anyway, this, so I, I tell this both because it's part of our, our personal history, but also because th there's, your expectations are always going to be <laughs> affected by something. And um, in some ways it seemed particularly appropriate that whatever plans we make, um, you know, nature, <laughs> not, not, not as a negative thing at all, but just simply we live in a climate um, adjusted world now. And these kinds of flooding uh incidences are going to happen and they're they're going to happen frequently and so we need to understand what it's going to look like moving forward in terms of the geography of the place we live as well so in some ways this was kind of perfect like it was an a, a really important learning experience and kind of a check on how we think about ourselves and how we live on the planet and um it the long story short is that um, it it was very clear we weren't going to be able to start with the diner, that the diner needed all of this work. Um, and so last, uh, so it'd be a year ago in February, um, we finally finished with an online catalog system and started with the consumer side of the co-op. So that is what is happening right now. Um, we just started doing weekly orders. We were doing bi-weekly orders. Uh, we have 149 members and um, only a small percentage of those order each time. Um, our biggest order I think has been 36 people. Um, so we order from whatever we can get locally. Uh, we order from a supplier. UNFI is the, the like a regional um, natural and organic foods, and also they work with a produce supplier called Alberts that's in Wisconsin. And um, so a lot of the work basically is just creating the an online presence at this point um, with the HFFI grant that we recently learned about. Uh, we will become a brick and mortar storefront. So that. That is the next step for um, who the co-op is. Uh, we have been very, very active in mutual aid efforts throughout the pandemic. And so um, a very large percentage of the food that comes in goes out in grocery bundles to families who um, can't afford to eat. So that might be enough of that. <laughs> Well, actually, I want you to touch on the producer owners because they're really important to um, where you will source your food from for the diner as well as um, what access to food the members get. Absolutely. Um, so that's been um, an interesting process as well. Um, the, the COVID summer of, of 2020 really changed the dynamics of local food. Um, some people, mostly large commercial farmers, were throwing out massive amounts of produce because their usual supply chains were disrupted. At the local level then, it was completely the opposite. There was no produce to be found because everyone, you know, all the CSAs were completely full. Everyone was sold out. Um, it was, I mean, farmers markets were certainly a problem um, because people just didn't want to be in actual personal contact. But um, the producers that we had discussed working with back this time last year um, basically had no produce. 
So in some ways, we're going to be starting from scratch in a new year. Um, over the course of the winter, we would like to create um, or set up some meetings of producers to talk about what it would look like for them to um, be in relationship with the co-op. Um, there, there are complications here. I, I, if I'm going to be completely honest, um, you know, I was a local producer for almost 28 years. I, we had a CSA and um, sold through a farmer's market, a food co-op, restaurants. Um, and pricing is really, really an issue um, because the audience for local food is an elite one. The prices are very, very high. And this, this bridge <laughs> that we're, we're going to talk about over and over again, because it's the whole issue here, um, between affordability and access to local food is actually complicated more by local food sources. So th this is something that we're really struggling with. Um, we, um, one of the ways that we decided to address this then is to apply for a, a SARE grant, um, the Sustainable Agriculture Research Education Program of the USDA, to um, just grow food for the co-op. So the idea for that grant is um, the, the neighborhood organization has a double lot. Um, so we wrote for the materials, you know, the compost and the chips and whatever to actually create a garden on a grassy yard. And um, much like the HFFI grant, um, the important piece of this was um, a worker ownership. And so the people who are interested in being involved in this community garden will be the worker owners. They will be paid a wage. So we put in um, $16 an hour for the time that people spend helping to produce food. And then the decision-making process will be um, part of their participation. So it could range anywhere from, there are a lot of people involved. It's very, it, it's critical to them to feed their families. You know, on one end of the spectrum, the food just goes to families who need it. The other end of the spectrum being that there, there's a lot of food produced and maybe this group of people wants to have a booth at a farmer's market. They can use sort of those elite subsidies to then um, create a sliding scale for the people in the neighborhood who have less access to the food. So that that's kind of the spectrum with lots of possibilities in between. Um, and there are definitely producers that are interested in being part of our model. And um, there are also people who um, are using the kitchen. So they are kind of crossing that line, there's no line between worker ownership and producers. Um, we have a couple of bakers that are using our kitchen so they can both um, sell their products in their own way. But as members of the co-op then, that kitchen use is, is free to them. And then we also list their products in our catalog so that uh, co-op members, consumer members can access the food that's being produced here. Um, so once COVID is less of an issue, we will have lots of people um, you know, bringing their own produce to the kitchen, for instance, and value adding if they want to. Um, people who will produce the things that we already list in our catalog. So we have a list of our own kind of prepared food items that we offer on a regular basis. So it's very integrated. There isn't a big line between the different sides of the co-op. Any consumer can use the kitchen. You know, any producer owner can purchase food through the catalog. Um, any um, farmer in the area can, you know, if they want to join the co-op, they can use the kitchen um, to produce their own value-added products, and hopefully we can then list those in the catalog. So we're trying to create this integration so that we don't even see the lines between those that are producing, those that are consuming, and those that are um, laboring to create the system. It sounds like a a very complex but still like seamless and circular system where everything is very much connected. Um, and just to summarize how all of this works, so the consumers have access to the catalog to purchase food. 
Um, they also have access to um, local produce that is produced and they can have access to the kitchen. And then the worker owners, they would work the brick and mortar shop. Um, they would also work at the diner and once you get this grant, the garden as well. Um, and then the producer owners are the producers at the garden and also local gardeners and farmers. Yes, absolutely. And, and also um, food entrepreneurs, I would add, to the producer side. So I'm curious how your decision-making process is integrating all of these different members <laughs> um once again it would be very different without covid um it's i'm sure everyone no matter what your your habitus or your workplace is recognizing how frequently we get together both formally and informally and when you completely erase any opportunity for gathering uh, it just changes the dynamics significantly for how decision-making processes happen. So we've had a couple of, of Zoom membership meetings, and um, we just had board elections at the end of the year. And um, so we have a, a fantastic active board. Um, and the discussion at the last meeting is that maybe we can um, set up some committees so that, um, and this this is such a, such a traditional part of the way people see co-ops is like, I don't want to be part of the co-op because then I'd have to be on a committee. <laughs> so um, we're, we're kind of slipping into that direction. It, we'll see how it happens. It's maybe not practical for um, everyone to get together all the time anyway. And um, we're just kind of feeling our way. So our, our kind of anniversary of our first order will be um, in early March. So we really are new and um, those decision-making processes are evolving as time goes on. Um, everyone, of course, has a, a vote, so a share equals a vote. Um, and we're excited about a couple of collaborations that are happening. Um, actually, later today, a meeting with an organization called Ujima Cafe. Uh, they're more of a, um, uh, an educational organization, so they're going to um, make and sell salsa to support their um, educational outreach for um, young potential food business um, workers, so high school and college age kids. And so, um, you know, they'll, they're members of the co-op now, they will use our kitchen. Um, and so it's, it's exciting to think about then having each one of the organizations that we collaborate with also being part of the decision-making process so that um, we become significantly more integrated into the community. So that that's the hardest part right now is they're just everybody's in their own little bubble. There's so much isolation. Um, there would have been many, many actions that we would have taken to create that kind of community integration. We do have good relationships with like the neighborhood organization and lots of other groups, but it's it's all virtual at this point. Yeah, I'm sure that definitely makes things a little bit more difficult, especially as you're still figuring out your decision-making process. Yes. Um, I know that one of your core tenants is affordability. And so I know the diner is supposed to be sliding scale. And can you speak about how you ensure that membership is also affordable? Absolutely. Um, so membership is also on a sliding scale. Um, our suggested share is uh, $100. It's a lifetime refundable membership. Uh, we have had uh, 65 of our memberships were subsidized by the neighborhood organization, um, others by donation. So um, quite a large percentage of our memberships are, are not at the $100 level. Um, members also can pay more if they want to help subsidize other members. So that's that's the, the share side of things. And then um, throughout the summer, we had an outdoor market and that everything that went outside was on a sliding scale. So we were doing that every other week. 
it's a little bit more challenging for the catalog since those are prices we we have to pay so we don't have any um, agency about what we are charged for um, wholesale food um, and we just have a 10% markup so all catalog purchases are at 10% and what we hope to do for the the grocery store coming up this summer is that we would have as many, all the garden items would be on a sliding scale. And then we would have other select items in the store as much as we possibly can to create, you know, a full range of grocery options um, to, pr to provide those, anything we can um, to be available on a sliding scale. So again, we're a not-for-profit. We don't need, we only just need to break even. We just need to pay our bills. And so hopefully by removing profit, um, we can, get closer to accessibility just by the values of the organization, but then we can um, improve that even further by just taking losses on um, the items that are in the greatest demand. So we will know that more once more people get involved, um, you know, kind of goes back to the decision-making process. You know, when you come to shop at the Marsh Co-op, um, you know, you can tell us what's on your grocery list. What are the things that you like to buy on a regular basis? And we can be sure that people get those things, even if it means marking up something that's, you know, more of an elite product um, for other people who can pay for it. I love that members, uh, that's what I also like about most food co-ops. They have agency in what's being um, served there, but um, of course, that's completely opposite to like your local grocery store. And even if you ask the manager of that store, where did these, where did this broccoli come from? They have no idea. Right. So the fact that they have um, a connection to the source of the food and also um, a say in the variety of what is offered is so, so important. I'm curious how, um, like local farm producers are navigating the price and how they're how you're ensuring that they're getting a fair price but that um the consumer members are also getting a fair price right yeah um the the way it worked this last summer is that many farmers were interested in selling their their number ones at full price and then either donating or selling at a reduced price for seconds. And so if we can create a market for food that is often thrown away um, or you know, sold at significantly reduced prices, we can then um, make that available to people who are aware that, you know, there's a little cut on this cucumber or, you know, the stem broke off of this squash or, you know, whatever it is that um, the standards of a commercial food system, which is basically that things last as long as possible, um, that we can, we can communicate about that. And so once again, it's about human relationships that people will understand, you know, this food is cheaper for these reasons, or maybe this food is free for these reasons. Um, and I think that the the producers that we worked with, we, we worked with about um, seven um, professional farmers, basically, um, over the course of, of last summer, um, we would like it to be way more than that. Um, loved the idea of being able to pass along some of the things that they wouldn't be able to sell otherwise. Um, there are challenges with that. You know, you still have to prep the things that, you know, you still have to wash the turnips, for instance, that are going, you know, that are going to market. Um, because we were doing so much mutual aid, um, a lot of those things, people were very, very happy just to donate because they knew they were going into donation bags. Um, we'll continue to do that as long as, as the need is there. Um, I, I should mention EBT also as, um, as an access point for people. So we're an EBT retailer. Um, we can also hope to take more of local producer food because we have a licensed kitchen. So then we can employ more worker owners that will be able to um, 
turn that food into something. You know, these strawberries are over a week old. There's a few that are moldy, you know, that can become jam. Um, so, you know, it, the, this, um, sort of integrated approach just keeps getting deeper and deeper, you know, all of the ways that, that food gets from, um, the people who are growing it to the people that are eating it. And, you know, as we interact with more people, as we have more conversations, as we build up relationships in the community, um, those options will just become more and more complex, which is exactly what a system needs to be in order to be resilient. It needs to be incredibly complex. It needs to be incredibly personalized. You know, that might work really well. One farmer might love to get rid of their old strawberries. Somebody else might have a market for that already. And they don't, they don't need that. They don't need any subsidy, you know, in any way. So it's just, it's, it sounds so glib to just keep saying that it's about building relationships and that it's really an, a relational economy that it that's what we're creating yes and um i think it's so important that you're using produce that would have otherwise been thrown out like that looks a little wonky or has a blemish because the standards for supermarkets is so high for produce like it basically has to look like perfection and that's not how nature works for one um but it's also bringing awareness to the amount of food waste that happens on a farm level and at the um level of supermarkets um so teaching people that just because it doesn't look perfect doesn't mean that it's not consumable and even reducing waste at the home level because if they see um like a little blemish on their produce, they might think, oh, I can just cut it off instead of throwing the whole thing away. Absolutely. Yeah. Waste reduction. I, I don't think I knew <laughs> before we were, you know, dealing with, with orders on a constant basis, um, just how important that was going to be, how much a, a big part of just our push and our goals was going to be um, to, to use all the food as as best we can. And I, I can see the side where, you know, grocery stores end up throwing out, you know, 70 or 80% of, of what's on the shelf. And it, it's just heartbreaking. Like they're just, if that was the only reason <laughs> to do this, that would be a good enough reason because there's, there's so, so, so much waste. Um, and th those resources are just, you know, th being flushed down the toilet basically. So Absolutely. When there's a huge need for it, especially now during the pandemic, the percentage of food insecurity has skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, so can you explain some more of the challenges that you deal with in trying to sustain the food co-op? Um, I think the, the, the things that are coming up for us, um, some of them are technical. Um, so it's something, you know, people who are thinking about, um, you know, starting something like this or, in, or engaging in um, starting a new enterprise. I feel like we were, well, we're incredibly lucky for a number of reasons. One, um, all of the, our website was basically built from scratch by just a, like a genius coder. Um, who volunteered all their time because they were intrigued with the challenge. So that is just pure luck. <laughs> um, the other part of it is uh, another lucky thing, I guess, is so many um, kind of brick and mortar businesses were at the beginning of COVID were scrambling then to create some kind of online presence. You know, how are they going to um, deliver food in a, a more remote way or, you know, a, a safe kind of curbside way? Um, we, we started with that. Um, so we weren't obviously planning on curbside pickups, but that's, that's been the way to do it. So um, the fact that everything started out online um, just, was kind of crazy that we were positioned then really well to work through uh, to work through a pandemic. Um, I think we've already talked about then. So the barrier then, the reason I, I went into that is that not everyone has internet um, 
capability. So um, there, there are many, many access issues related to an, an internet-based or even an internet-leaning kind of an enterprise. So most of the people, for instance, that receive their membership subsidized by the neighborhood organization have never shopped at the co-op um, because shopping at the co-op right now is only through a website. Um, originally, of course, what we planned to do was to meet individually with people and talk to them about their, you know, their family's eating habits and what kinds of products they, you know, help to be develop a menu plan and how much money do you have on your EBT card each week? And, you know, it, it was going to be personal <laughs> and we didn't get to do any of that. And so now we have this, this giant barrier basically of the internet, um, which is, you know, a spectacular tool and also um, a, a real uh, hurdle. Uh, for many people, even people who do have, you know, perhaps internet access on their phone, um, it's not practical to order your food, you know, using your mobile device. So we're unbelievably excited about um, being able to open our doors. It's part of the reason that we we uh, thought of the market over the summer, um, and we actually had our last market the first week of December. So that's, um, I guess, a weird advantage of climate is we were still getting things out of our garden. We still are getting things out of our garden <laughs> right now. Um, so yeah, the, that's, I guess, the primary challenge then is how to translate um, what we're doing um, into languages that that meet people where they are so that you know and there's all kinds of languages that we that we communicate in but right now um everyone is communicating in this internet language and not everyone is um understands it so um and you know it that applies across the board you know cooperative language as you said right at the beginning you know it, it's complicated um and so how do you talk about what it is you're doing um, when it's it's not just easy talk. You know, you can't just say a few words to understand how a co-op works, why someone should join one, you know, how this is going to change your life for the better. Why do we even know that? Like, who are we to say? Um, so there, those are the challenges for me are just communicating um, sort of what it looks like now and what we think our community could look like if we decided with some um, intention to do this thing together. Wow, I love the person of personalization of um, what you plan to do with people in the community and really giving them consultation about their eating habits and um, suggestions of what they can do with this food, how they can cook it. Because there's also been studies done that even in um, like more lower income neighborhoods, if they have access to fresh produce, that they would still go to the process aisle just because um, that's where their mindset is at. They're not aware of the possibilities of having access to fresh produce it's also complicated you know we were talking about you know using some of our social media maybe to um some of our members are interested in um, maybe passing a, a recipe along or a, a photo of you know them cooking with martian greens you know just kind of a silly idea um and so i was kind of like writing out you know what it would look like like a menu plan how much would it actually cost to buy the ingredients for a particular dish that you wanted to make and you know even say you can you can afford the the you know you eat meat you can afford the chicken you can afford the vegetables you could afford the the rice to put together a meal how does that food turn into you know, stir fry, how does it turn into curry? How does it, do, well, it's it's herbs and spices. You know, the, the flavor profiles are the things that turn our food into things that we have associations with. 
And that's a whole new ball game. You know, you start walking down the urban spice aisle to buy a little jar of curry, you know, it probably costs what, eight, eight, nine dollars. Um, that just completely changed your your entire shopping experience. Um, so we just got thinking about, you know, once the store is open and if people, you know, you could create grocery bundles, but it would have those important things in there. You know, you can't you can't stir fry without oil. You know, maybe maybe that's something that just isn't a part of everyone's pantry. And then to make that original purchase of, you know, a bottle of olive oil, again, you know, you're talking twelve, fourteen dollars. It it's just it's a consideration. And I think that that's just the the place that we have to go and why we need lots of involvement from you know, people who live here, people who have had experience in the widest possible range of activities so that the, those kinds of questions can be responded to. So we can find out what it is, that, what are the barriers for individuals because it's gonna be different for everyone. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to have people in the community share recipes and photos um, because then it also becomes a cultural exchange. Like people will learn that if they use these certain types of spices and they can create um, a variety of different flavors from across the world. Um, And it also gives people the agency that, oh, people actually care about what I'm creating and that and it brings out the skills that people can have outside of their like day-to-day job. Yeah. Yeah. I think it could, it could make cooking fun for people. It doesn't feel so much like a chore. um, If something exciting is happening and you're sharing it with other people. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe you guys can also do like little mini cooking workshops for the community at some point. Yeah. We talked about putting together like a, again, like a grocery bundle and everybody would get all the ingredients and then they would just, cook it together you know everyone would make their meal and take it home so (laughs) so many things when when people can gather again we're just gonna be going crazy with excitement so yes um well in lieu of the pandemic I'm curious how that has affected Marsh and um how that is also helping Marsh to support the cultivation of a more resilient community? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, The primary challenge has just been that most of our ideas feel like they're sitting on a shelf right now. You know, they did just has to wait. Um, So many of the things that we feel like we could be doing or could be doing better just have to wait. So um, lesson in patience, maybe on the flip side of that coin. Um, and yes, you know, the the fact that we were completely um, in, in a perfectly prepared position to provide um, remote and then um, curbside pickup. So we've really missed getting to know, um, you know, there, there are people who, who buy regularly from the co-op that we were just talking about that we're not sure we would recognize because um, we've only ever seen them with a mask on. Um, we've only ever seen them distance. You know, they come and they wait in their car until their food is on the, the curb and then they get out and get it. And it's just so sad, you know, that just so many of the pieces of these relationships are missing. Um, you know, all of our gathering ideas, you know, member meetings and, you know, even the committee meetings that we're starting to talk about, you know, they would all be food-based. You know, you'd you have a meal together. That's, you know, either people would bring food from home or we'd prepare something here. And it was going to give our our worker owner chefs an opportunity to show off their um, their creations. You know, they would be able to like have an event where they would be serving a meal and they could get like just right there, get feedback from people. You know, I'd like this better if it had a little bit more salt, like just, you know, pop-ups, kind, kinds of experiences. Um, you know, we would have been doing that, you know, monthly if not weekly you know just because there's a whole nother sort of theoretical or conceptual framework but you know what decides whether people feel happy in their lives has a lot to do with the geography 
um, just the place that they live in. And so having community gathering spaces and having places where people know they can go and, the, you know, the doors are open and everyone is always welcome and there will be food when you get there and, you know, those kinds of things. It's just we, we would have an entirely different relationship um, with our community, even in the short time that we've been here, um, if we could literally have had our doors open. Yeah, and help. That's the last thing we, we have no help. We can't ask people to come in and help. So we, you know, we have a limitation for the amount of time that we have to, it takes us all day to fill about 25 orders. Um, so if we have more than that, then it basically just means we're working into the night, we can't invite more people in to help. So the, we're, it's created a, you know, a kind of a limitation on how much outreach we do, and we have done, done no outreach, basically, because we're afraid that if people did join the co-op, we would be able to do it, so. Well, um, there's a lot of possibilities in the future, and I think that that also adds to the resilience that the co-op is bringing to the community is those, um, are those relationships between people, um, because, that's when you have the most resilience, when you're able to to adapt is when um, everyone is valued and there's different roles that are contributing to um, the community overall. Absolutely. And just to imagine a society where you've met your neighbors, you know, and even if you disagree with them on some fundamental levels, you're, you, you know them. You know, you've seen them, you've eaten food with them. Um, and, you know, as you're sitting around a table, you can talk about what the word socialism means or what the word democracy means or why it matters. And so I, I don't think that we're, we're going to be able to address those fundamental um, uh, fears that, that people are living in. Um, without lots of opportunity just to cross paths. Absolutely. So can you tell me how you envision a changed world? Um, I think, you know, just sort of the easiest answer is that just in the, it again it sounds a little bit appropriative but you know the the seven generations idea that that at a policy level our decisions are based on consideration for seven generations down the line um, there are just so many terrible things you can't do if you're thinking about the habitability of the planet and the well-being of people, animals, plants, whatever, in the future. Um, so I guess I envision a world where um, where community planning is done by the community. Um, so I think we start at the neighborhood level. I actually, um, my background is in like urban planning and I, it's very, very frustrating to watch bad urban planning happen. Um, but I really feel like, uh, you know, a sustainable future does require actually people to live more in urban areas. So we have a, a kind of a, a different view of what that means. But um, it, density is something that um, we need to aspire to. And I see St. Louis in particular with its massive amounts of vacancy, you know, a three million population city shrunk down to a, a tenth of that um, and massive amounts of vacancy, both um, buildings and land. Um, so to to take that back up, you know, to, to I'm making up this word, densify <laughs> our, our, <laughs> our communities um, so that we're, we're closer together doing the things we need to do. You know, every green space, every abandoned yard, um, you know, a garden or what, or an orchard or what people need it to be, you know, if they need it to be a park or, um, you know, what, whatever it is that that community needs it to be. So I really see um, 
the future of the world to me is dependent upon community and neighborhood based planning so that people are incorporated in the decision making processes of their immediate community and their perception of the world is affected positively by their experience of like walking out their front door and going down the street. I love that you brought up urban planning um, and that you're kind of advocating for people to um, live in more dense environments because actually by 2050, like 80% of the population is supposed to be in cities anyway. So how can we create cities that are more regenerative and intelligent and um, not just in the hands of the developers and pushing people out that have been there for decades, yes. generations. Um, how can we get them a part of the conversation and make them feel comfortable and like they have agency in what is happening in their community? I think it's so important. And I've also been just like conceptualizing um, urban planning in terms of revitalizing New York City after the pandemic and really a lot of cities that um, have their systems have really been crumbling as of lately and how can we bring back a more thriving art and cultural scene within these cities that are really for and by the people. Right, right. And perceiving of people as as a resource, not not in a, you know, like neoliberal kind of way, but in in their sense of themselves and to, to have people's skills and interests and passions and energies be utilized as part of the system by, by their own choice. Um, and we just, we think of people as, as being like a draw or something negative about the system, but it's like, no, they're there. It's like a beehive. You don't think of the bees as being like bad things that you need to get rid of some of them or move them out. Like we all work together. <laughs> the more, the merrier. <laughs> exactly. We are all integrated in the system. So I want to thank you very, very much for sharing your time and energy with me um, and for all of the knowledge that you've shared. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. I can't wait to receive the link. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it, make it better than we find it.